Hello everyone and welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast where we're living for preventative mental health, love and compassion. I'm really glad that you could join us again. I'm Caroline Heim and today we're going to continue our podcast series with chapter one of negotiating diversity with insights from science and clinical psychiatry. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe, spread the word and recommend them to others. In these uncertain times, please stay mentally healthy and continue to share your love. Here's Dr. Christian Hein. Hello. As in our first episode, I'm going to be reading some from Christian's book and I'm going to be asking some questions along the way. So here we go. Chapter one, why are we so different from philosophy and myth to science? A talent for speaking differently rather than for arguing well is the chief instrument of cultural change. Pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty. Cultivating understanding and acceptance among humans is not easy. It's taking us thousands of years to get this far and, as evidenced by ongoing conflict in the world, we still have so much more to understand and accept. On a smaller scale or on an individual one-to-one level, however, it's easier to understand and accept. We have some heroic examples of this. The Germans who helped Jewish people escape the Holocaust the many Jews and Palestinians who work together for peace in the Middle East, and the business owners in Belfast who iron out differences between Protestants and Catholics. It's important to most all of us to have good personal relationships, regardless of how people out there are behaving. We needn't be heroes, but we can negotiate our diverse personal interactions on an individual basis. That's what this book's about. As a clinical psychiatrist, I work with individuals to not only overcome mental illness, but to help them find meaning, usefulness, and better personal relationships. This includes negotiating diversity. Better relationships mean better mental health. Take-home message, negotiate diversity for better relationships for better mental health. Good relationships with fellow human beings is protective for mental health. I have several people whom I can be my authentic self with. My adult children share their ideas and they tolerate hearing mine. A close friend accepts my idiosyncrasies and I hide nothing from my love partner except the occasional birthday present. Good relationships protect my mental health. They make me feel at home. We all enjoy this feeling. It's mediated mainly by serotonin and oxytocin in the brain. Increasingly, however, Familiarity is not the norm. A lack of familiarity can send a brain into a spin. On our planet, many of us encounter more strangers than familiar faces. The internet promised social connection but has delivered disconnect and alienation. Many who grew up knowing every person in the street now barely know their immediate neighbour's name. Our lives are growing in suspicion and distrust. Our trust tanks, formerly filled by the familiarity of friends and family, are depleted. This leads to less resources for help to negotiate the problem of other people. How did we reach this point? To help answer this, we'll take a sojourn back through time, consider an important myth, the philosophical state of nature, the development of cultural diversity, and the need for social masks to deal with the resultant diversity. The point of chapter one is to illustrate that cultural and other diversity is as fundamental to human nature as different skin hues, 
but that it leaves us with a unique problem related to the problem of other people. The problem of other people. Everyone relates to the problem of other people. We need others, yet they get in our way. They help us, yet they hurt us. They can be friend or foe or often both. How can we relate to each other amidst a sea of strangers? How can I make sure that other people are friends? Why do they get in the way of what I want? If it weren't for someone else, I would have won that competition. I could have been in that relationship. I could have been in that job. I would have done what I wanted. Somewhere along the line, someone else gets in the way. That's the problem of other people. Some get in the way, others are outright dangerous, and some are just unfamiliar. And this makes me feel uncomfortable. Yet all of us feel the right to be who we are and express ourselves and be accepted. In my clinical work, I encourage people to be their authentic selves, to be more real. This places more demands on others to accept us for who we really are. This too is part of the problem of other people. I want to be accepted, but can I accept others? Our society is grappling with this issue in many vital ways. Think of how unfamiliar it feels to visit another country, to go to a restaurant with foreign cuisine, to watch a movie with subtitles, marry into a family of a different culture, or attend a religious service you don't understand. They're different. I'm different. Maybe I don't belong here. The brain hates this feeling. It likes acceptance. And we compromise much to gain that acceptance. Take home message. We make compromises to gain acceptance, yet we long to be our authentic selves without compromise. This is a tension in each of us. Okay, I just want to stop there, Christian, and talk about um, this, because it's really interesting, this idea of compromise that we make daily. I'm just wondering about different personality types and whether some tend to compromise more than others. And I know it's very complex if you want to, if you to explain it, but I'm just going to well, no, hit, hit you with this no, anyway. No, actually, that's, that, that's a very good question because that too illustrates how different we are. And our personalities are so different that there are some people who actually will make more compromises to be with other people. And these are the people who we call agreeable. And there are people who are not willing to make compromises just to go along with the flow with other people. And we call these people disagreeable. But you see, that too is diversity. Yeah. And anyway, <laughs> that too is something that we have to embrace and negotiate. It's part of the problem of other people. Okay, great. All right. So yeah, we're all very different that way. And we've got to accept it. <laughs> okay, back to the book. Patty's recently married daughter barely contacted her. Patty thought, it's him. He's making her break off contact with me. That's what foreigners do. He's no good. He slopes whenever he drinks and he can't speak English properly. She should have married Harry. Oh, I liked Harry. He's from a good family. After listening to Patty's problems and how he was the cause of her woes, we discussed what Patty could do about the situation. I asked her to research his culture, attend his religious services, and walk the streets where his people lived, as well as try to keep her opinions to herself. Months passed. Then a new, more reflective Patty came to see me. Oh, I'm so ashamed. I was the problem. He's actually really very nice. But I put up a barrier because, well, he was different. 
Now I ring him occasionally to get to know him more. It's much better. Now this was not easy for Patty. There were many tearful moments, but exposure to his culture helped break down barriers and grow to like him more. It helped Patty solve the problem of other people. The problem of other people goes deep, as deep as René Descartes' 1637 idea that I think, therefore I am. I know that I exist because I think, but what about you? I can see your body exists, but I don't really know about your mind. Does it exist? If it does, what's that to me? Do I need to be afraid of you? Can I trust you? Philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre grappled with this problem of other people in his Man in the Park analogy. Imagine you're in a park. It's a sunny day and you see trees, grass and people. Everything feels fine because you see the world through your eyes. You spot a man sitting on a bench reading a paper. He's a harmless part of your world until suddenly he puts down the paper abruptly and stares at you intensely. Now you're unnerved and threatened, not because he wants to hurt you, but because, damn it, you have to share the world with him. He exists. He has an opinion about you. He may be judging you as ugly, stupid, awkward or attractive. You don't know. He has his point of view and you're just a part of it. There's no way of knowing what he thinks about you. You feel his penetrating gaze. You can't change his point of view. In his mind, he may distort who you really are. How dare he? Now, multiply this by millions upon millions of other people and their multiple opinions and judgments, and it becomes easy to appreciate why Sartre concluded that hell is other people. Sartre's philosophy articulates what's wrong with the human condition. But I believe his philosophy is only half right. He considers only one side of the coin. The man in the park didn't need to put down his paper abruptly to stare at us intensely. He could have put down his paper quietly and smiled at us gently. Our world would be a very different place if he did. It's a choice. Making the choice to put a paper down quietly and smile gently is part of the method we will explore in coming chapters. Take home message. How we interact with others is often a matter of choice. Okay, I want to stop there again. Yes, it is. But isn't it also a matter of courage? The problem of other people is real and we are not all that courageous to make the choice. That's a very good point because the problem of other people is very real and it does take courage to make let's say, the gentler choice. And again, this shows how different we are. Some of us will be able to make that choice more easily. Some of us will have the courage. But for other people, it'll be more difficult. It'll be much more of a challenge. And we have to embrace and somehow accommodate that sort of difference, that sort of diversity as well. There's just no way around it. We are different and we have to live with each other on this planet. Okay, great. Thanks for that. All right, back to the text. To avoid the complications of Sartre's grumpy man in the park, we often stick to people who look, talk and act like us. Doing this builds culture and shared values, but it alienates others, those who are excluded. As an example, consider clothing. What we wear is part of our culture. Originally, wearing clothes only kept us warm, but eventually we chose from available fabrics, colours and styles, and over time, these choices led to fashion. Humans' preference for some over others to be in or 
accepted and being able to judge and exclude each other based on our in choices. Now we wear certain clothes to be fashionable or not, to feel good and to be accepted by a group. Sometimes we choose clothes to keep warm, but most of us still want to look attractive and acceptable, which is why cool evening dresses reveal so much female flesh, while suit-wearing counterparts swelter while looking smart and debonair. Others' opinions go a long way in defining who we are. We conform to the clothing culture to be accepted, not just to keep warm. Beyond clothing and fashion, others' opinions determine whether you get a job, find a love partner, are accepted into a country, a friendship circle, a club, a family, or in society anywhere. We conform to culture because if you're not accepted, you may as well not exist. Being an outcast is a virtual death sentence for humans. We really are social creatures. This is what makes solitary confinement such a harsh punishment. It's emotional torture. We need each other just to survive. We inherit cultural norms like clothing, fashion, and learn from parents and society. We adopt values, mannerisms, ways of speaking and thinking, and tastes and ideals. As a reward, we're allowed into society. It's like a sign, a social contract to become part of the human race. In this mythical social contract, we make compromises to get on with others. We need other people, yet they get in our way. Some take the job we want, but others educate, feed us, shelter us, provide law, order and safety, produce goods and the experiences we want and share our lives. To be a part of society, somewhere at the dawn of civilization, according to philosophers like Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau and Kant, we made a social contract with others to behave well and avoid hurting others. In exchange, we retained the right to remain culturally different. In Ibsen's epic stage play Peer Gint, the protagonist meets a society of trolls. But to join in, he has to have his eyes cut in a certain shape to see the world as they do. This is a striking metaphor for culture, a particular social contract, and concessions made for acceptance. Well, that's a bit extreme. I'm going to stop there too. Having your eyes cut out. Do any of us cut our eyes out? Well, we're not talking about human beings here. We're talking about <laughs> trolls. Right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> and trolls do see the world in a certain way. Yeah. But I like the metaphor because it's an artistic metaphor. Nobody goes around cutting eyes, but we do affect the way we see the world. Yeah. We do put blinkers on. We do yeah. say, okay, I'm not yeah. going to see that part of you because that's then I'd have to really look at, and, and make judgments and, yeah. Blinkers are cutting our eyes in a certain way, cutting out our field of vision. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Anyway, back to, um, back to the book. Aristotle and Kant, in particular, wrote on cultural difference and our behaviour towards others. Enlightenment philosophers especially considered what we humans would be like without social norms, laws or morals or the social contract. What would we be like in the state of nature before the social contract? We'll consider the ideas of Thomas Hobbes, John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and their influence on the American Declaration of Independence and the French Revolution. The state of nature. To be enlightened means to understand. The Enlightenment period in the 17th and 18th century Europe was a time when people were understanding more about the world through science and reason rather than religion or myth. Arguably, the Enlightenment began in 1637 when French philosopher René Descartes declared, I think, therefore I am, and continued until liberty, egality and fraternity torched the French Revolution. 
heads of monarchs would roll as people became enlightened to the idea that all people are born free, equal and connected. Liberty, equality and fraternity. The French and the American revolutions helped make liberty a democratic reality. Jefferson enshrined life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence, 1770. And Lafayette, consulting Jefferson, wrote The Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, 1789, which helped shape post-revolution France. He also influenced the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948. Liberty, egality and fraternity come from consideration of the state of nature, a philosophical thought experiment about what human life would be like without the constraints of society, morality, civilization, or laws, before a social contract. Her full name is the Statue of Liberty Enlightening the World, a gift from France. She strides New York Harbour as a 300-foot monument to the American-French connection. She is the Roman goddess Libertas, stepping out of shackles with a torch held high while holding a raised tablet inscribed 4th of July 1776. She represents freedom. Moral and political Enlightenment philosopher Thomas Hobbes surmised that in the state of nature before the social contract, our lives would be nasty, brutish and short, thanks to our selfish appetites. He believed we humans would tear each other apart. He reasoned that the social contract was our consent to be governed by strong, authoritative government to curb our innate evils and to save our lives. His influential book is entitled Leviathan, a giant, fearsome, biblical sea serpent. The book was published in 1651, two years after Charles I of England was beheaded. Hobbes was a pastor's child who witnessed the horrors of the English Civil War. Philosopher and doctor John Locke, son of Puritan parents, saw the futility of religious war and conflict, so he emphasised our capacity for reason and tolerance. He says in his Second Treatise of Government, 1689, that in the state of nature we have the unalienable right of life, liberty and the pursuit of property, and we choose the social contract to protect these rights. Thomas Jefferson echoes Locke in his wording for the Declaration of Independence. We assume the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature entitle us. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights governments, derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Philosopher, opera composer, music theorist, educator and novelist Jean-Jacques Rousseau also reflected on the state of nature. As a musician, Rousseau championed feeling. This idea is reflected in his Discourse on the Origin and Foundations of Inequality Among Men, 1755, and in The Social Contract, 1762. He believed that the state of nature was one of innocence, where we have healthy self-love and we'd show love and compassion towards others. So strong was his conviction in our innate goodness that he left his family's Calvinism. They fled to Geneva to escape Catholic persecution and converted to Catholicism due to the Calvinist idea that humans were totally depraved. 
His state of nature was an idyllic nature setting, where he'd enjoy love, family and music. His philosophy influenced Jefferson, the new US Democratic Republic, the French Revolution and most political ideologies ever since. Rousseau in particular believed that humans' evils come about because of the influence of society rather than from people themselves. So which of these do you think is sort of reflects more of our positive thinking and our ideas? Well, the positive thinking comes from Rousseau, whereas the negative thinking uh, that we are brutish and evil comes from Hobbes. And it's a way of thinking about life that personally I disagree with. It sort of thinks that we exist before all of society. Yeah. Whereas I actually see that we're born into a society and then we have to make our way to see where we go. And to me as a psychiatrist, it's evident that we have the good concepts, the loving concept that Rousseau talks about, but we also have a potential for evil that Hobbes talks about. Okay. And so we have to balance this. And that too is part of the problem of other people. Okay, great. Thanks. Okay, just a bit more of the book for you today. So, as Christian said, (laughs) Hobbes says we're basically evil in the state of nature. Locke and Rousseau say we're basically good. Who is right? Understanding how this idea plays out in this would result in more harmony among people. Science, as we shall see next chapter, broadly supports Locke and Rousseau's positions with a caveat. We must choose to get on with each other. It won't happen all by itself. Okay, so what do you think? Are we basically good or basically evil or somewhere in between? Something for you to think about until next time. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll look forward to sharing more from the book in our next episode.